Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Creator Talks and if you're not returning, welcome for the first time to the podcast. I am your host Christopher Calloway. On this episode, my guest is Steve Pinella and he writes Faith Fallon and that is being published by Insane Comics. This is part of our spotlight on Insane Comics creators that I'll be doing over the next several weeks so you can learn more about their creations, their comics, and about them. You know, Steve did such a great job in this interview, I feel like I wasn't doing my job. He just took the ball and ran with it and explained all about Faith Fallon and how she finally came to fruition after years of struggle. This podcast is a great example of what the show is all about. It's not about me, it's about the guest. And not just about their comic book that they're working on, but it's about them and their path that they took to get to that point, to produce that comic book. And Steve's work is some comic book. It is not your typical comic book. It is very different. He uses mixed media. It's uh, very writer-driven, not just a picture book by any means. So if you have certain preconceived notions about what a comic book is, this will shatter them. Don't believe me? Well, you can take a peek at the art on the Insane Comics website. There you'll get a little sneak preview of what it looks like. And besides talking about the comic book, as we always do, we talk about a lot of other things, including what goes into making the comic book, because Steve is a graphic designer, so he talks a bit about the details behind that, and some other fun stuff as well. So, you've heard enough from me, let's get to the interview. My interview with Steve Pinella on Faith Fallon, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. You're coming to us live from the man cave. I have one too. That's why I bring that up. My basement's where I store my comics. Yeah, our, our basement, uh, there was a part of it that was once carved out as the man cave, and that lasted for all of maybe 10 minutes. And eventually, I managed to carve out a small portion of the basement where I could hook up uh, my workstations and keep my art supplies and a drawing table and some computers going and it's small but it does the job which is great good good i'm glad you have your own space i i have the basement for the comics i have one of the bedrooms for my my office my studio and i have i actually have use of the garage for my car so my wife is like you've got three rooms what's going on you know <laughs> most guys are lucky to get one <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, our garage is a one-car garage, but it was made for the one car in, like, the 1970s, and, now you know, uh, everything is just so much bigger. I mean, you know, my wife drives, uh, you know, a, a Suburban. I mean, I have my car, but it wouldn't fit in the garage anyway, so we use that for storage, too. Uh, you know, three kids, it adds up. Yep, I'm in the same place. One One-car garage is an older house. It's really tight to get the car in there. There's not much room for anything else. So, yeah. But, hey, thanks. Uh, I, I guess we're both kind of in the same situation. Uh, the little ones just went to bed. I have little ones, too. I have uh, well, I have an, I have three also. I have an older one. She's actually uh, graduating from art school tomorrow as we're doing this. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, she's a photography at uh, Tyler School of Art uh, in Philadelphia. <clears throat> and then I have oh, very a, nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, excited about that, so... Uh, Gonna hop on the train tomorrow and go uh, see your graduation, and then I have one in kindergarten, a boy, and I have a eighth month old son. 
So wow. they have just gone down, and the missus is going to enjoy a little television while I'm doing this because I'm loud and she can hear me through the wall. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll try to be entertaining in case she hears me too. So. Okay. <laughs> it must be a challenge to get things done when the kids are up, and I'm always interested in hearing from creators who also have families, kids. How do you manage to find the time to get things done, especially with a day job? You know, you basically find ways to invent ways. That's really, it's hard to explain, but you just kind of have to force yourself to do it. Now, when I first decided that I really wanted to do this thing, there was no publisher in mind. There was really no shot. I didn't even think about actually getting it out there. I just figured, you know what, I really want to do something that's sort of like my hobby, if you want to call it that, or something that was like a way for me to escape because I don't watch a ton of TV. I mean, on average, I watch maybe three or four hours a week. You know, my kids own everything as far as watching things. I'll watch a couple of shows here and there. I don't go to movies that much. Uh, most of our friends are, you know, through friends that we've met because our kids knew each other in school and that type of thing. And most of my creative comic book friends are all over the country. I don't really get to see them unless it's like on Facebook or at a comic con. So I, I don't really, I don't have like a, a buddy that I hang out with that draws, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's like I'm the only guy that out of everybody that we know that does this. So I would just kind of do it like, you know, after everything's done, I could, you know, work on pages. I could use, you know, do part of it on my iPad, part of it on a, on a Wacom tablet, sketch out stuff on, you know, just on paper before I scan it in, uh, work on a laptop. I, I just do everything piecemeal, little by little. Maybe, um, you know, if there's a free, if there's a like an hour or two free on a weekend, uh, you know, I'll try to sneak in something like that. Uh, it's a little harder now with three kids because everybody. Each of our kids always has something to do, you know, whether it's like football, birthday party, play dates. Uh, so you just kind of like find your way to do it. So like in my case, I had this thing in my mind, this Faith Fallon series for a long time and knew it was going to be roughly 300 pages and had it finally broken down to 12 chapters. And I just basically started working on you know, page by page, panel by panel, and I just grinded it out. And sometimes I'm lucky and I can get a lot of stuff done in a month. There's other times where I don't touch it for a month or two, literally, I, or outside of maybe like maybe doing some lettering or some editing or proofing. I don't really get to sit down and like work on a page for like five hours straight. It never happens. So it's kind of like you just make the time. It's like I could be vegging watching TV or I could actually, you know, do something. Even sometimes when I ink my my stuff or if I even like practice inking on pencils I found on the internet. People do adult coloring books. I do adult inking, I guess. That's one way to explain it. So you just kind of find your way. That's really that's all you can do. And you know, maybe sometimes I stay up a little later at night if I have to. Yeah, that's um, that's what I found too. Is that uh, people that are working the day job and doing this too, and raising families, is you just become really efficient, and you find little pockets of time. Like I'll, like I've often said on the show, for me it might be early in the morning before everybody's up. You know, make the coffee, empty the dishwasher, 
start editing, right, right. whatever. Same thing, get home from work, run upstairs, knock a few things out, dinner, maybe a bit after everyone goes to bed. That's just how it gets done. <laughs> That's basically it. And honestly, once I started showing my work and talking mostly to like independent comic artists that were doing their own books and fi- finding out that they too have day jobs and they too have families and they too have, you know, real life, you know, always taking precedent over things. So I kind of felt better about it in the sense of like, well, I'm not the only one on the planet that's, you know, going through this. I mean, it happens to everybody. And, you know, if I were, when I was younger, when I used to go to like comic conventions, like, you know, as a teenager, I used to think like these artists had it made that all they did was draw funny comic book pages all day and they were making boatloads of money and they had all their free time and they could do what they wanted. It never occurred to me that they actually paid for their tables to be there to meet people and to sell sketches for 15, 20 bucks. I figured that that every artist was treated like the guest of honor and was basically treated like royalty where they just did it, roll out the red carpet for them and did everything. And then you find out that, Oh no, I had to pay for this table. So it's kind of like, maybe it's like the drill secret cartoonists don't want to admit that they, you know, have to find ways to supplement their income besides just doing comics. But it is kind of true. You know, you have to, you know, you have to keep the roof over your head and you have to like, you know, feed your kids or things like that. It's actually very important. <laughs> I mean, obviously. And so you try to get the books out too when you can. So like I said, in my case, I probably had 10 months worth of 10 issues worth of material done before I even tried to solicit the book. I mean, seriously solicit. To be that <laughs> far ahead, that's really good. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't want to be the guy that, you know, contributed to the legend of the independent artist that has the book out one month and the second book on time and then the third book comes out three years later. You know, I mean, I know that drives people crazy. And even talking to you know, uh, comic shops, they a lot of them just flat out don't even want to talk to you if you're an independent because you're basically you're dealing with the reputation of everybody else. I, they, you know, they won't carry it. Uh, diamond isn't exactly the easiest thing. I mean, there's many issues that I would have had to have dealt with. Yeah, and if books are late, that, that kind of kills your audience. It's just kind of like even, I mean, honestly, even people used to complain about like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad taking more than a year sometimes between seasons. I think Sopranos was famous for that. It was supposed to be a year later. It was 18 months sometimes. I mean, I don't know. I never had HBO, so I never watched the show. But I heard that people that did watch it got upset that they had to wait so long. Yeah. But when that happens, where a series is delayed, you know, if it comes back, the the stores may not even bother stocking it or won't take much of a chance on it because they've been burnt. You know, they they get stuck with copies because then the customers are unhappy with things being late. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a responsibility to... You know, you're you're coming from a disadvantage being an independent person that, you know, somebody is actually willing to give you a chance to look at your work. And, and if it finds an audience, I mean, the least you could do is actually make sure that the audience, you know, gets into a routine like you do. So I feel like, like I said, besides the fact that I had almost 10 issues of material done, I've got maybe 
10 or 12 pages to finish and I'm totally done. And I think I have about a year to do that. And, you know, you would think, oh, that's easy. It's a page a month. But honestly, with my day job in the past month and a half, I think I did a page. I mean, I was lucky to even get that much done. And it's the end of school, the school year. And then there's like Easter, there's Mother's Day, there's holidays coming up, there's birthdays. It's a lot. You know, so it sounds like it shouldn't be that hard to get it done. But I, I know I'll find a free moment in there where I can get a couple of pages done in a week or maybe get five done in a month. I mean, I probably average about overall the project. I would say it came out to about a page a week. So I'm still within reason of getting it done. I mean, and I know I will, but you, know, you tend to sometimes think, oh God, it's so close. You know, what am I going to do? But you, know, you just, you just find a way. Well, the issues I've read have taken me a bit on your journey to get to this point, And I would like to expand on them a bit. Um, you started okay. drawing at a very early age, like third grade, you recalled drawing. And what did you used to like to draw back then? What was the first thing you were drawing when you picked up that pencil in third grade? Um, honestly, I think the first thing I actually remember was I had, uh, I was homesick because I had the chicken pox in the third grade. And my mother or father had picked up some comic books at you know, the local drugstore back when you can get them on the rack. And my very first comic books were, I guess they kept like back issues at the time, uh, were Spider-Man's. The first one I read was the one where Gwen Stacy died. And I only knew Spider-Man from the cartoon as a kid. So I'm thinking that, you know, you see, you see him swinging his back and you see all the pictures. I was like, where the hell is Betty Brandt? I thought she was the girlfriend because I remember the cartoon. <laughs> right. So I was like, you know, who's Gwen? I have no idea. So I didn't even like, it didn't even like dawn on me how, you know, devastating that was. I mean, so that was that one. And then there were like two issues before that. He was fighting the Hulk in Canada or something like that. And then there was a, a horror comic book. And my dad had some carbon paper in the house and some paper. And I just started taking those comics and I just started like basically carbon papering those things and just like tracing them and then coloring them. And then eventually that's kind of like how I started copying everything. And that's how I eventually kind of got into it. And then I tried to like draw them on my own little by little. And it was kind of like, that was something I really enjoyed doing and felt that, you know, I want to do this. I want to be a comic book artist. I mean, to me, that was like the ultimate. Now, again, that's the seventies. I mean, if that were me today with iPads, 4,000 channels on TV, Netflix, all these computer interactive games, I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have even paid attention to it. Maybe I would have been more into something else. But at the time, that to me, that was like the be-all that ended all. And that's pretty much how I started. But, you know, then I, you know, kind of drew through high school and then ended up going to the Kubert School and... You know, that's when I found out that I still had a lot to learn. I've talked to people that have uh, gone to the Kubert School, and it's um, just interviewing those former students. It's a crucible. Um, it's, you're, they're separating the men from the boys and the women from the girls. It's You receive some uh, unfettered critique of your work by uh, Mr. Famous, quote, I don't know if we want to mention who he is, but you— Yeah, they, no, they, I'm not going to, <laughs> okay. but only because I, I want to actually— 
see, I, I really want, if next time I see him in person at a convention, I'll mention that he is Mr. Famous. But uh, yeah, after my first year of, of, of the first year at the school, I realized that there were guys like, you know, one of my classmates was Bart Sears, just to put it into perspective. I mean, Bart Sears was Bart Sears before everyone, anyone knew who Bart Sears was. He was that good, you know, and then there's me. Like, what the heck am I doing here? But, you know, I thought I was getting better. And I had taken a painting class over that summer at a local artist guild because I really didn't do a lot of like painting or coloring to that extent. And I knew that Greg Hildebrandt was going to be a painting teacher there at Kubert. So I was like, and I, I loved his work. I mean, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. I was like the ultimate fanboy of his stuff. So I took that painting class over the summer. I brought some of my comic art to the class once because I mentioned to the teacher and somebody there knew this artist and arranged for me to, you know, meet the person. And the guy basically ripped me to shreds, like, you know, really told me, basically told me what I needed to hear. And, you know, I was uh, maybe this close to saying, I'm just not going to do this. I'm not ready, but I decided, you know, I, I got to do it. I mean, I, I, just have to buckle down more that's all and it probably made me you know be more critical of things yeah, I think that was a good thing and then you know like I alluded to in one of the early Faith Fallon issues that I saw the guy at a convention a couple of years you know maybe a few years before I had actually gotten the book you know ready to solicit and he you know was very complimentary of the work. I mean, there were things I needed to work on. He pointed them out, but he generally, you know, gave me a good vibe about it and really liked what I was doing. So I kind of felt like, well, you know, it took 30 years, but I got, you know, I got the good housekeeping stamp of approval. So, yeah, I mean, when you go to a school like Hubert's, yeah, they're not going to sugarcoat anything. I mean, they will, you will definitely draw more than you have in your entire life and you will learn a lot. And I mean, granted, I graduated over 30 years ago, but I'm pretty sure that their mentality is the same thing. And it's a full-time art school. There's no playing around there. It's three years. It's very intense. And the teachers are very dedicated. They've always been. And, you know, I, I see I see the work of grads, you know, now, or I find out, wow, they went to keywords. And, you know, it's like you could just see it you could see that they're really, really teaching fundamentals and how to be, you know, a good cartoonist, comic artist, commercial artist, you know, they're really, uh, they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to play with you. They're going to make you work and you'll be better for it. Definitely. Now there was a period there. You said for like 20 years, 30 years that you walked away from comics and drawing for a while. It wasn't right after this, situation though it was a little, a little bit no no actually I graduated in 85 and I was able to get like I mean I wasn't good enough to say get like you know a job drawing spider-man or anything like that I just didn't have that skill level which I, I sort of knew that but I would try to get some spot art jobs here and there occasionally I would get some small ones but I was basically trying to do a lot of graphic design work but you know, I graduated in 85 and, you know, around that time, 
some guy named Steve Jobs invented this thing called a Mac or an Apple or something like that. And I kind of felt like the uh, kid who just took over his dad's horseshoe factory watching the Model 2 drive out across the street from him. Like, I'm 21 years old and I'm already, like, displaced by technology. Are you kidding me? So I'm like, okay, I got to find a Mac. How much are those? Oh, they're $10,000? Gee, thanks. You know, I mean, back then, it was incredibly expensive compared to whatever. So, you know, it got to a point where I could get the occasional freelance graphics job, but it was like, you know, this is not a way to, this is not a way to live. So, and also, again, you're getting into more real life. Like I couldn't keep locking my, I felt like I was locking myself in a room trying to draw stuff that nobody would even look at. And I just kind of felt like I wanted to move on and, you know, sort of have a real job slash real life. And, you know, I would, you know, it wasn't like I never picked up a pencil, but I never really finished anything. I would probably like, you know, sketch things out here and there, maybe draw a figure on a napkin, that type of thing, or draw a cartoon, but nothing was ever serious. And I, I would say if I did anything, it was more like just for practice or for fun, but I had gotten, you know, gotten out of the comic world completely because I just felt like I'm never going to get anywhere here. And, you know, I just moved on to different things in life. And then, you know, some of it was some desktop publishing stuff where eventually I could, you know, I was able to buy PCs cheaper than Macs. And I guess I was a bit of a geek where I could sort of, you know, put things together and build things. And I was able to work with printers as far as doing some typography for local companies back in the dark ages with, you know, linotype reproduction and whatnot, or saving things on side quests and all that fun stuff. Uh, you know, real ancient stuff. Or I used to even go to like Alpha Graphics and do my my typesetting on one of their little Mac stations, but they were like charging 50 bucks an hour back then. You know, you're talking 1987, $88. I wasn't making 50 bucks an hour doing graphic design work for people. So that was kind of like, why am I doing this? So I ended up doing, like I said, I went and sort of like the real world, real job thing. And I, you know, I always kind of dabbled in it, but, you know, I, find, I eventually got into like doing graphic design full time or computer graphic design, mostly corporate type of work. And, you know, that was fine. And then around 2010, the Cupid School had a uh, open house and I went to it and then I saw some of the artwork there and I realized like, you know, in the back of my mind, I used to think I was so far beneath what was being produced. And I looked at the stuff and it was like, I can do some of this stuff. You know, why am I thinking I can't? It's not as intimidating. Like I started seeing things differently. Like I, I understood more of like what, you know, you would see Joe Kubert's work on the walls. I understood what he was doing with his inking. I had an idea of what Andy and Adam were doing with, you know, their drawing abilities. And then even, I really didn't collect a lot of comic books, but I used to see like graphic novels at Barnes and Noble or, you know, collections. I saw some of like Alex Malieve's work and I was looking at like the way he did backgrounds and some of his effects. And I was like, God, I do this stuff sometimes. I, I used to do some photography, and it's like, wow, you can do this in the comics. I never thought of that. 
was like, oh, yeah, of course you could. And, you know, I'm not trying to say my work is like his, but I, I saw things they were doing. I saw computer coloring. I saw different production. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I could do something as a graphic designer. And then after I went to the Cuber thing in 2010, that was like April of 2010, I think about a month later, I decided I have this idea in my head. Let me do it. Let's see how it goes. And, you know, and it started coming together for me. So, you know, maybe it was just like, you know, just waiting to come out at the right time, I guess, right place, right time. And Faith found the character, it evolved over, I guess, several years. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't come out fully formed. She was a bit two-dimensional when you first came up with the idea and just kind of stuck with you and you kept working at it. Is that pretty much how it went? It wasn't just there all at once? Actually, it was based on an early assignment from Joe Kubert in the second year of my when I was at the Kubert School, he had this assignment where he created six different characters in six different genres, like humor, horror, science fiction, Western, uh, you know, exotic lo locales, things like that. So my horror character was an actress, more of like an 80s actress versus like, you know, a 50s femme fatale, but she was an 80s actress who essentially had been you know, bitten by a vampire, and now she wanted her revenge because she realized, like, you know, my vampires cannot be photographed, cannot be recorded, and cannot be seen, and don't cast reflections. I mean, maybe they do now in Twilight or whatever, but I kind of went really old school with that, and I'm thinking, you know, for an actress to be eternally beautiful but to never be seen, that's almost like, you know, that's literally like the kid in the candy store. He can't buy anything that would drive. I think that would like really be an insane thing. So I, I had the idea and it was part of an assignment I did for Joe. Uh, I mean, totally different. The only similarity was like both actresses were, were blonde actresses with blue eyes. That was about it. And you know, nothing ever happened. And then I actually tried to write it as a screenplay in the mid nineties, early two thousands. And it was like, I wasn't drawing as much, but I had the idea, so I figured at least let me get it down. And I wrote it as a screenplay, but honestly, the screenplay was awful, and I'll be the first to admit it. And I hope no one ever finds it and reads it, but I got a lot of, I got a lot of the bad stuff out, which was a good thing. But, you know, I never really did anything with it. It was just sort of like a template of what not to put in if I ever decided to do anything with it. And then, you know, it was always in the back of my head, and then over time, I kind of got the idea of, you know, what if this was like a real epic that went from, you know, different parts of American culture and folklore? What if there was like some parody elements of some media things that had occurred? Uh, and then it was always sort of a, a horror story and a gothic story. And, you know, eventually it turned into, you know, the Faith Fallon that's out there today published by insane comics and uh you know people seem to like it and i'm glad they like it and you know it's it wouldn't have worked if i had done it in the 80s and it, even if i had followed the 2000 screenplay forget it it would have been a really bad idea but <laughs> I, I got it i think i got comfortable enough with it where i like where the story was going i liked the idea and you know i kind of like went with you know, I, I guess I just like evolved as a, a writer 
as well as like an illustrator. And it just worked. You know, finally, I felt like I can do this. I can put this together. And this is something that I think is worth telling, you know, a story worth telling. And maybe people will actually think it's worth reading it and viewing it. And, you know, so far, so good. Well, when I looked at Insane Comics' line of books, there were a few that really jumped out at me right off the bat. Um, there's a lot of fine ones out there, but there were a few that like ran right to the top, and yours was one of them, was probably like number one. I'm like, I must read that. It's unusual from the other books in that with your graphic design background, you're using both graphic design photographs and line art. So you're combining those two, which I don't – it's being used more in comics today, obviously, that you see photo referencing, you see right. you know, that kind of thing worked. And they were doing it back in the 60s. Kirby did it. He put photographs into some of his artwork in Fantastic Four. Um, but it was very unique from everything else that I see. And so – is that how you're doing it? It was with um, uh, graphic design, Photoshop, and also line art. What kind of what kind of? Uh, well, every everything is definitely heavily referenced. I mean, I, I can look back at things now and say I didn't quite get the uh, dress styles as accurate as I would have liked to in some of the sequences. But generally, I do try to really look into the reference material, and I do find photo references, public domain pictures. Uh, you know, there is the occasional swipe, just like, you know, just like Wally Wood did or Frank Rosetta or Neil Adams or anybody. And that's another dirty secret. Like, you know, it's almost like when I was in the when school at the Cupid school, there were sometimes you almost while teachers would tell you to reference things. It was almost like other students were kind of like, oh, you had to use a photograph. You didn't really draw that. It's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> but. And yeah, of course it looked better when I had something to reference. I mean, to be honest, I couldn't draw a car from the 1920s or 1930s without seeing a picture of it. And to be honest, I probably couldn't draw Charlie Brown without a picture of him in front of me any more than I could draw a picture of Paul Newman. So, you know, it's believe me, if I could figure out a way to just trace this stuff, I mean, like Wally Wood said, you know, don't. Don't draw what you can copy. Don't copy what you can trace. Don't trace what you can photograph, you know, Xerox and so on and so on. But uh, I use a variety of different programs. I mean, it's not, it's not like necessarily just Photoshop. I mean, I, there are some free apps that I found when I used to have an Android phone, which I don't use anymore because I don't have that phone. But there's a couple of, you know, there were a couple of things like uh, sometimes I'll do some sketching in like uh, some iPad apps or uh, I have a, a laptop that I do some stuff in. The lettering is all done. Uh, it's CC Dave Gibbons that I bought from. I think it was Blambot fonts. I always liked Dave Gibbons lettering for whatever reason. It's just something I always liked. It kind of it almost reminded me of like the Kubert font, but I didn't want to buy the Joe Kubert font and do the lettering. I just kind of felt weird stealing his lettering, I guess, or, you know, it's like a little too much, but I, I like the Gibbons lettering style. And when I saw the font, I used that. So, I mean, that's done. I'll, you know, I have all the dialogue and words. I can just copy paste it in and play around with the formatting as I need to. Um, but I mean, I, I don't think there's any one thing, you know, if it's out there, I'll use it. If I can, if there's a program that does, you know, that's better at say doing like uh, 
a foul zipitone than another program, I'll use that. I mean, there's th- I've used freeware like Inkscape and GIMP. I've done some stuff with an older version of Photoshop, but a lot of my Photoshop is just combining layers and maybe exporting them as TIFFs or whatnot. I don't really follow everything there. And even some of my line inking in the earlier days, believe it or not, I was actually doing with a mouse and using like either a pencil line or a line because I once had this assignment in a corporate job where we had a photograph of about 100 people for like a 25th anniversary of this company I used to work for. They wanted to have like a map of the photograph, you know, like the, the outline of the character oh, of yeah. the people mm-hmm. with, with numbers on their head. Mm-hmm. And on the other side was one through a hundred. So I, I think I was number 12 or whatever, but you know, I, this was like pre uh, the company I worked for was a financial consulting company. So they didn't have a lot of, even though they had a, a graphics department, it was all PC based. They didn't have a lot of stuff that we could have used. They didn't have a good scanner. So my initial thought was, well, worst case scenario, I could trace this with the rapidograph and scan it somewhere. And, you know, we didn't have a scanner. So I decided to take it in an old, early version of Photoshop, one of the first ones for Windows, with a mouse. And I literally zoomed in on the thing. And I just traced the entire picture. But I also blew it up to, like, you know, five times the original size so that when it shrunk down, the actual image map was maybe four by six uh, in this, uh, in this like, annual report. But the actual pixelated image was probably, if it printed out, probably would have been like uh, 11 by 17 or, you know, something proportional to that. So that thinking with the mouse technique actually sort of worked for some of the harder line stuff. And other things, it's really just a question of playing with layering, dodging and burning things, uh, playing with like, you know, whether I'm using a multiply layer or a dissolved layer. It's, you know, I I wouldn't advise anyone to try to follow the way I do things, but a lot of the early stuff, even some of the stuff now is very experimental. And, you know, for every page that it works, there probably were a couple of pages that ended up in, uh, you know, the trash bin in cyberspace never to be seen again. So it's, it's a long process, but I'll, like I said, I'll use whatever I can use. I mean, some of it was done on Mac, some of it was done on iPad, some of it was done on a Wacom Cintiq tablet back in the day when it was like an Android, where they were, had Android apps enabled in it. You know, I have an old PC workstation. I mean, you know, as long as I can export it for the printer to the format they need, I'm good. And that's always something I had to do corporately. A lot of corporate accounts, they'll have like a design department or it's all in Macs, but the production people ended up doing everything on PCs, usually really old, junky PCs where like the gerbil died from running on the wheel to spin the power. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really, it's just really crazy. But, you know, you, again, I, I think my biggest thing was I was able to find ways to do things, you know, with whatever was given to me. Cause I, I know sometimes people say, oh, it's a computer. Anyone can do it. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I can, 
I, I know of this. Uh, in, I know of this this thing where it has six strings on it, and there's maybe a set of scales and seven notes, give or take, do re mi fa so la ti, whatever. And you know, you can buy that. You can take a lesson, and I'll even give you the pick, and I'll even give you the sheet music to Eric Clapton. You go play against it and see if you can do it. It's a, it's a tool. That's it. It doesn't make you any better or any worse. It may make it faster or more convenient, but, you know, so does my car when I drive to work versus me walking or, you know, the horse and buggy or whatever. So, you know, it's, to me, it's like, you know, use everything. I mean, I, I've, I've seen people do great special effects and backgrounds with like spray paint and versus an airbrush. If that works, great. <laughs> I agree. No, there are some people that uh, I've heard complain about artists that use photo referencing. Like I, I hear some people don't like Greg Land's work when he heavily uses photo references. Um, some of my favorite stuff he did that way. He, that whole uh, the very start of the Marvel Zombies, Greg Land was drawing those Ultimate Fantastic Four books using a lot of photo reference, but they were just well mind blowing. Um, Dennis Claro does a lot of that. I mean, I like that kind of work. It's Neil Adams uses a light box sometimes. At least he used to. I know a lot of commercial artists, not necessarily comic artists, that are photo tracers, and you would think it's very easy. But I would tell a lot of people, try to trace a photograph and see if you'll match what they're doing. There isn't, there is an art of knowing what you're, you know, forget what you see when you trace. You have to know what you're tracing you really have to understand this stuff. And even like the old fine art uh, studio painters, when they would do like, you know, site size painting and whatnot, where, you know, they were measuring things or drawing grids on top of grids to get everything done. I mean, you know, a lot of the old masters copied things, but, you know, I don't know of any decent artist that doesn't reference or doesn't use higher models or, you know, it's friends and family to pose for themselves. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's YouTube videos of Neil Adams and Kevin Smith where Adams is basically saying, if you're not tracing it, you're, you know, you're a fool. You, you should, it's okay. I mean, you know, I, like I said, I don't, I don't resort to like totally tracing stuff, but I mean, I, of course I'm going to reference stuff. I mean, this is a lot of my work in this series is a period piece. I can't fake it. I, I mean, if I was that good where I could, yeah, it would make life easier, I suppose. But I also may not understand as much of the culture of what I'm trying to draw. Like, I may not have gotten the early issues with the 1940s or the 1920s. I don't think it would have turned out as well. And even in one of the other issues, um, I think it's the, uh, the third issue, I believe, uh, where Faith is in Hollywood and the producer's wife just doesn't quite like her and wants her to leave. And so she goes to her spiritual advisor and it's this really like stark contrasty black and white imagery, not, not very heavily toned. And I was basing a lot of the lighting and the stylist effect off of an old Orson Welles movie that I, I was just like kind of trying to find things of that period. And I paid a lot of attention to that type of stuff. Now, I didn't, you know, trace panels, you know, stills from the film, but they definitely influenced me. And I don't think that's the worst thing to be influenced by Orson Welles. I'll take it. 
you know, and I, you know, honestly, I, I was taught by Greg Hildebrand. He referenced everything. And even it's kind of a weird story, but it, one of his first assignments for our class was to take um, a painting that he, he was working on a series of like Grimm's fairy tales, like a, an illustrated children's book. So like the, the first real painting assignment we had for him was literally he gave us the drawing, told us to trace it onto with carbon paper onto our artboard. Then a week later, he gave us all the color schemes for the, it was Siegfried and the dragon. So he gave us, here's the color scheme for the dragon. Here's the color scheme for Siegfried. Here's this color scheme for Siegfried's claw, you know, his furs and, you know, his weaponry. Here's the color scheme for the rocks in the background. Here's the color scheme for the gold. So you're thinking this is practically paint by numbers. And to make it even, you know, easier or less to give us a better feel for it, Greg actually brought in photographs of, you know, the person that posed as Siegfried, who was also like a student at the school, like a year before us. And he actually had photographs of like this clay model he made of the dragon. So you would think that everybody would have virtually the same painting. And we all had different, and it was like a class of like 20 of us. There were 20 different paintings. The only thing Greg didn't do was show us his version. So we all finish our painting after however many months, like almost half a semester. Then he brings in his version and you're like, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like. So I could literally, you know, give all of, I could literally give everybody a tutorial on how to do it. It's going to look differently. I could tell 10 people, this is exactly what I used to do this issue of Faith Talon. Have at it. It's not going to happen. You know, that, I mean, you know, on the flip side, if Neil Adams were to take all of my stuff and do Faith Talon one, it would probably would be an amazing thing that I would be like, I'm not worthy. Or, you know, Alex Ross or somebody like that. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's a craft. It's a, there's a lot to, that goes in on it. And for me, I think one of the strongest points of the work is I'm using a lot of my background as a graphic designer to create this look and the imagery and the storytelling of it. And I'm trying to make it a little unique. And even one thing I wanted to do was, since the whole thing is grayscaled or, you know, or stark black and white. I even wanted the covers of the comics to be black and white. I didn't want to have color covers, black and white interiors, because I thought it would stand out more in a sea of color comics. You know, if we ever did a trade or something, I would do a color cover because that's sort of a different market. That's a different animal and uh, that would make more sense. But for the comic, I really, all 12 issues will have black and white comic covers and black and white interiors or grayscaled interiors. And I was just at a Hudson Valley comic convention. I had a table that I shared with one of the writers at Insane Comics. He had Saturday, I had Sunday. And I had some color artwork, some prints that I did, but everybody seemed drawn to the comic books and the black and white comics, the first five issues. Like it was a very unique thing, you know, in the sea of color, in the sea of people doing, you know, superhero prints or Walking Dead prints, or I was... You know, I was between, you know, one guy was a comic book inker, another guy was this really great full color artist. And I had my black and white comics, but I got as much traffic as they did. And I think, you know, sales wise, I think I did as well as they did. 
I didn't feel like, geez, everyone's walking right by me. You know, it was, it's meant to, you know, it's almost like the fact that it's black and white and the way I'm doing it. I, I want it to be different. I almost want it to be like the comic book for people that don't read comic books, if that makes sense. Like try to find a different audience too, or a sort of a niche market. Mm-hmm. And that's, I wanted to ask you, like, who do you think the audience is? Because before you answer that, I was you know, looking through the book and thinking about it. And okay, there's a story about a lust for fame. And you told us a bit about the character and where she ends up. I didn't want to spoil that, but that's where the story right. goes. Um, so it does really take some turns as you're reading along issue by issue. You're like, oh, didn't see that coming. Um, and it's told from several different characters' point of view. It switches the narration throughout. You know, it might be Faith. It might be someone else that you're hearing the dialogue, right. their internal dialogue. And there's right. not a lot of word balloons. A lot of it's just dialogue on the page mixed in with the picture. So it's very different in that regard. So like you said, it's almost like a comic book for people who don't usually read comic books. When you were at the cons, people coming by your table, who were they? What was the audience? Did you notice any trends when they came to your table, any any particular demographic you were hitting? Yeah, actually what I did notice, and I also noticed it like on my um, my Instagram feed for Faith Fallon, that the majority of the people that follow her, or the, out of like all of the books that I sold, I would say that it was probably five to one women versus men that uh, bought it. And as far as like Instagram followers, yeah, I mean, I have, I know people, I'm not saying it's just all women that follow it, but I see a lot of uh, more female fans and that they're not necessarily comic book people that seem to follow it or have like, you know, messaged me and said, Oh, I really like this or have asked me about it. And even, I would say there are at least three or four people that I sold issues of Faith Fallon to this past weekend that said, you know, I really don't read comics, but I have a friend that I think will really love this because she, she's really into the old Hollywood or she loves these, uh, she loves these American horror stories or like this true blood type of stuff. And, you know, I basically tried to treat this as um, I wanted, I sort of envisioned it as, this, you know, it's, it's for mature audiences. It's not hardcore. It's not explicit. It's not penthouse, but I conceivably think would this interest somebody that would watch say an FX or an AMC or Showtime HBO miniseries that, you know, had an edge to it. And I think that's what I'm finding. Those are the people that are, you know, getting there. Now I have also have friends from, you know, my old school days or even other professional artists that you know, I, I don't want to name drop them. So I, I won't do that, but that I, I send copies to when I get them that offer feedback or really like the work. And, you know, it's basically, I guess I'd call it for, like I said, comics for people that don't read comics or don't even realize how much of a cultural effect comics have. Like I have friends that had no idea Walking Dead was a comic book that watched the show. They had no idea. Um, or that Men in Black was a comic book like 100 years ago or, uh, you know, the Tom Hanks Road to Perdition movie or the one with Vigo uh, Mortensen, History of Violence. You know, people don't realize that those are comic books. And like, yeah, they were. They were comic books. Or even 300 for that matter when that came out. Um, I worked with people that were, you know, 20s or 30s that you would think would know that 
they had no idea. They just thought it was this like really cool video game, you know, uh, Braveheart on steroids movie, you know. And I was like, no, it was a comic book. You know, like they, they're thinking comic book. They're thinking long underwear guy. They're thinking Batman from the sixties or you know pre Neil Adams. They had no idea going for. We're, we're kind of insulated because we're you know we're always reading comics. We don't we're just kind of shocked when people don't understand where some of these things come from. I had a, a friend of mine once uh, when I mentioned. Uh, back when they had the death of Archie and it was kind of an alternate universe story. And I mentioned that, uh, over lunch one time, she said to me, uh, they still make comics. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> and it's just, Oh yeah. Right. Exactly. It's like, I almost felt like when I first got my first comic books, when I was in the third grade homesick that weekend. And like I said, the night Gwen Stacy died. I mean, I was a kid. I saw the Spider-Man cartoon show. I didn't realize that they did comics really, or maybe I knew, but I never, didn't really know. So people are surprised or they they just don't realize that there's a lot of stuff in comics that are being, you know, introduced to more popular culture that, uh, you know, people, you know, producers or whatever, or just in general, people are finding that there's a lot of good stuff out there, but you really have to look for it. So I'm, I think the fact that I actually, I forgetting like even not drawing as much or even paying attention, I really hadn't. Read. A, I didn't keep collecting comic books after a couple of years out of the Kubrick school because I really, you know, I, I kind of felt like my money was better spent like on rent and food versus like spending like a buck fifty or two dollars on ten or twenty comics a week. And I just kind of lost interest over time. Like I'd occasionally see something, but I, I I'm really not even a big comic book reader now, mostly because of time. So. Even when I was doing the initial idea of Faith Allen, I wasn't thinking, hey, this reminds me of, you know, this hot artist or this hot artist or, you know, I don't think anyone's going to accuse me of saying, oh, my God, this guy's pokering image. You know, when you look at Faith Allen, it's totally different. And I'm kind of glad that it's different. I figure if I'm going to do this, I wanted it to be like, I'm almost treating it like a, like a fine art project in a sense. Yeah, I, I wasn't thinking of an audience. I was thinking of, I really want to do this, and I think I could really make this into something where, you know, that people will enjoy. And now, that was really the motivation. And this you can pick up on the Insane Comics website. Issues uh, one through five are now out. And yeah, it's a bi-monthly. So the fifth issue came out in April. Number six will come out in June. And uh, it'll continue. So basically, we've got about another year or so, uh, you know, before the 12 issues are out. And, it's, and you know, it's, it's a limited series. There's not going to be uh, an issue 14, 15, or 16, or 17. Maybe I might do an unlucky 13th, but, or I might just make the 12th issue more than 24 pages and round it out to closer to 30 or something like that, you know, for the final issue. Because I, I don't want to just like pad the story. The mm -hmm. story is written; it's there. But occasionally, even as I do it, I'll realize that you know this layout would work better in one page, but this part would work better in two pages, or this needs to be a full page because it's a real shocker. You know, the, the imagery is worth it. So you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have the initial layout and realize you know it just doesn't quite work. I gotta do it this way. So it's possible that the twelfth issue could be. A little more than 24. I'm kind of leaning towards 30 myself right now. And we'll see where that 
that goes. Okay. Um, and that's available print and digital on Insane Comics website. Do you have any cons you're planning to go to in the upcoming months? Um, well, I, I did actually in April. Uh, I was at the Great Philadelphia Comic Con. Actually, uh, Insane Comics had a booth there. I missed you I by actually, a day. I was yeah, there. I, I, I was there on Friday. That, I went on, <laughs> yeah, I was there on Saturday, and that was the only day that I that I went. And they were there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, I just did the, a small Comic Con, Hudson Valley Comic Con, which is in Poughkeepsie, New York. That was last week. There's one in Stamford, Connecticut, called the Lock City anime and comic con it's in stanford connecticut um you could you know just look up google lock city comic con stanford and it'll have all the information of it um other than that like i'll probably go to a couple of cons just as a fan and i'm sure i'll bring some copies of my book and show it to other artists or if i know somebody that's there uh, like i want to go to see them and maybe trade off a book or something because there there are friends of mine that do their own thing too, so you know, like they they want copies of the comic, and I'm like, oh, you know, I'll see you at the show. Um, you can get them for me when I, you know, I'll see you in a month. I'll just show you then. But as far as like getting another table, I mean, right now I haven't really settled on anything. I'd pro if I were to do anything, I'd probably do a smaller show, more local, and it would only be for one day because I really can't justify the time. Or like the like, uh, like I can't I can't do New York Comic Con. I couldn't afford that one. That's like a that's like a fifteen hundred dollar bill. Oh, I know. I, I can't afford that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> you know, but a, a smaller show, yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to do that because as long as I think I can break even. I mean, I'd love to think that I could sell fifteen hundred dollars worth of comic books at New York Comic Con, but I I think that's doubtful. Plus, to give up like an entire weekend, three or four days, plus take away vacation days at work for it. It's not something I would, you know, real life doesn't exactly afford me to do that. Mostly because there's time with my family and my kids. That's very important to me. So I'm just going to stick to like smaller local things. I might try to score a couple of art gallery things. Uh, there's some local bookstores I've been talking to about maybe doing like a, an author day and show them the book and, if I get it, if I ever do like a, a trade of some of the issues, then that might be more appealing to them because it would actually be like a book versus a comic. Because there still is that sort of perception with some people that, you know, it's not real if it's a comic, but if it's a, if it's a trade paperback, all of a sudden it's like bookstore worthy. You know, that's go figure. Well, but, you you've got a lot on your plate. You know, you're at work doing your day job, you're trying to squeeze this in, you got the family. So this is the part of the show I call peace and relaxation. Because I have to ask my guests, what do you do for peace and relaxation? Honestly, luckily I enjoy doing the comic work. And so that sort of is sort of like my escape from, you know, escape from reality in a sense. I mean, you know, there's not, I mean, I don't really have like, I mean, I don't play cards. I'm not a, bowling guy or a golfer or anything like that and uh you know but there's always you know that believe it or not i mean just being able to like have uh a day off and like even like having a day off with the wife and the kids and going to like a, a mini vacation or 
and taking them to an amusement park or even just going to the park and riding our bikes and throwing the football around with my oldest son. You know, it, that's basically, you know, that to me, that to me, that is relaxation. I mean, you know, I've got, you know, you work all week or sometimes weekends and, you know, everybody's busy. So you want to have time where you just, you know, do something just for yourselves. So, you know, that's really, that's really the way I answer it. And I think like my one sort of, you know, me going to the occasional comic con is probably my form of relaxation or every once in a while, uh, I'll, you know, go to a small concert with like a friend or something like I, you know, uh, last year, a friend of mine had, uh, tickets to black Sabbath that he got from somebody else. And at the last second, the other guy couldn't go. So I got to see black Sabbath. That was great. I mean, so I'm sort of like catching up on, you know, bands that I didn't get to see when I was younger. Now I can go see them. I mean, it, it sounds weird, but I mean, if you think about it, like, I, I remember, like, you know, people look at New York now, and they think it was always like that. If you saw, like, New York in the 70s and the 80s, you know, it was a hell of a different city, and maybe not exactly something you would feel comfortable going to all the time. Like, I remember my my wife wasn't, you know, my wife actually is from Brazil, so she really didn't know, she knew what New York was, but she didn't really know much, and she said, why didn't you go to New York more when you were younger? I'm like, because I wanted to be older and she didn't get it because she's thinking, well, how bad could it have been? And I remember once on Netflix, we were watching, I think it was nine and a half weeks. And then she was asking, there was one sequence where Mickey Rourke and Ken Basinger are running through like a really sort of low life part of the city. And she said, what city does this take place? And I said, oh, this is Times Square. And she's like, what? No way. Then, you know, cause she sees Times Square now it's Disneyland. And she, it was like, to her, it was amazing how much it had changed. And then I was showing her, like, some of the old Scorsese movies, like, you know, Taxi Driver or uh, um, Mean Streets or even some of the old Al Pacino movies, like, you know, Cruising or uh, it was a George C. Scott movie, Hardcore. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this was New York when I was a kid. This was New York when I was, like, in middle school, high school, in my early 20s. So, yeah, that's why I didn't go there a lot. That's why I didn't see a lot of bands or go to a lot of concerts or whatever. So, like, to me, now it's like, and it's funny, I, I go to, like, a, a Black Sabbath concert. I feel like the young guy. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think we all probably lived the same life and didn't realize it. So, it's, it's kind of fun. Or even, you know, I think probably the most, uh, you know, I don't want to call it selfish, but, like, I know, like last uh, September, Electric Light Orchestra was at Radio City, and I got a ticket for one show, and they ended up adding a second show. I ended up getting a free ticket, like for the second show, so I went. I was like, you know, I I, I saw them the year before at Irving Plaza, but prior to that, they didn't even tour in the, around this area for thirty odd years, and I had a ticket thirty years ago and gave it away because I was an, an idiot. So yeah, I mean, I, I spent. To see them at Irving Plaza, I spent 150 bucks to see them live, thinking the guy's pushing 70. He may never do another show again. And then when he did Radio City, I saw him twice. So, you know, I, I try to, like, maybe catch up on things I didn't get to do when I was younger. I, I guess that's, like, what I do for fun. Okay. Do you have uh, something you consider an island book that you would want to be the book with you if you were stuck on a desert island? 
geez, you know, I never actually thought of that one because I would hope like if I was on a, you know, hopefully if I'm ever going to like be in a position where I'd be stuck on a desert island that I'd be on a nicer cruise and maybe I'd end up on a tropical island and not somewhere in the middle of a desert. Um, no, I really never thought of anything like that. I mean, it's not that I'm not a reader, but I'm actually more of a, I'm actually more of like a, a news junkie or a tutorial junkie than anything else, or, you know, a, more of like a nonfiction junkie than a fiction reader. I mean, you know, I, I, I think honestly, it's, it's going to make me sound like really ignorant, but I think the last novel I read was the Da Vinci Code. And that was only because it seemed to be mandatory when the thing came out. It's like, if you didn't read it, you weren't human. <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean, I've read some Stephen King stuff. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, it's not that I don't know how to read, but I, I tend to read like, I read a lot of newspapers and magazines and I, you know, more of like a current events guy or, uh, you know, things in Wired magazine, or I like reading Rolling Stone, that, you know, for the music stuff and for their, you know, their reporting or their commentary on things. There's certain writers that I like to read. Um, you know, I like Charles Pierce on Esquire. Yeah, you know, Matt, Matt Taibbi at Rolling Stone, I like his work. Uh, yeah, so I'm not really, I think I would probably want to be able to at least if I'm stuck on a desert island, I'd at least want to know what's going on in the rest of the world. Maybe after reading it, I'd be thankful I'm on a desert island, but <laughs> you know, no, that's, that's a fair answer. I mean, I don't have time. To, I try to start reading books. I just don't have the time to actually get through one. I'd have to carve out part of my day every day to get through something. I just have to be more disciplined about it, but I, I don't have time either. It's, it's really, it's almost impossible at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty hard. And then also like, I'm still working on my, you know, I'm still putting in X amount of hours a week or as much as I can finishing off the Faith Fallon series. And even though the series is almost done, it's scheduled to come out when it comes out. I mean, I still have to, you know, I, I still have to like get things ready to submit to the insane comics. So it's ready for print and all of that stuff. So uh, that takes time too. You know, you know that 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 could take a couple of hours just to get everything formatted the way they need it, and making sure everything everything works the right way. Final so, question I I have uh, your beverage of choice when you're relaxing. Uh, I'm basically you know I'm a Merlot red wine type of person. Okay. Yeah. You know I, that's basically me. I'm not really I'm not a you know I I, I can count how many actual sodas I had this year on one hand and the club soda notwithstanding or seltzer water but i don't drink sodas i don't drink juices uh i like i like to have my coffee in the morning the occasional glass of wine um not really a beer person you know maybe an occasional like ipa or something like that but you know i'm, I'm pretty simple it, maybe it's the italian heritage and it's a glass of wine <laughs> with dinner type of guy well, you have excellent taste in music and excellent taste in drinks, I will say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I try to. I mean, you know, I, you know, it's, it's actually, it's funny. It's like to hear excellent taste in music because I used to get vilified 
for liking Electric Light Orchestra in high school. But then again, they did do the Zan- they did do the Xanadu movie, so well, okay. they sort of lost their cool factor. <laughs> I'm thinking John movie. Yeah, I'm thinking that yeah, kind of really because I remember yeah. kids in high school not hating them or liking them, but after that, it was almost like yeah, you know, they had to pretend they couldn't like them anymore. <laughs> and but you know, it's like anything; everything old's new again. Now they're like. They ended up being one of the hottest tickets for the few shows they did, and they sold out Europe, and everybody loves them. And now they're in the Hall of Fame, so, you know, go figure. And, you know, their music has been, you know, has been in pop culture for a long time. I mean, there's it's in the something New Gardens about movie. them. Yeah, right. I, I heard that they're, like, the opening of it. But even, like, when they did the Grammys a couple of years ago, I think that was... I don't know what those young, what the young is called, this app called Shazam or something like that. Supposedly that was like the most viewed or downloaded thing on that Shazam app at the time when they did Mr. Blue Sky with Ed Sheeran. You know, like it, it's like a huge thing. And, you know, you saw, you know, I mean, if you think about that performance, you saw Paul McCartney clapping and dancing and then he sees he's on camera and he sits down for them so that the cameramen get off of him and get on them. So, I mean, how many people can say that Sir Paul deferred to them? Yeah, that's you pretty know? impressive. Man. I don't think that, that, that ain't going to happen to me anytime soon. So that, that that's pretty cool. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, you, you, you may think you're cool, but you'll never be cool enough that Sir Paul McCartney will bow and go away so that you can get the attention. Well, Steve, thanks so much. It's been a, a great conversation this evening talking about a lot of different things, including Faith Fallon, in your book coming out through Insane Comics, but I also like the other things we talked about, especially about the uh, creation of the book and the creation of art, because the show is about the creators, not just about the book, and it, it was a great conversation uh, hearing you talk about you know, how you studied art, how you used graphic design, you're working in all these different mediums to put together this really unique story and in a unique way of Faith Fallon, and finally your your dream, your ideas, is seeing it come to light and be printed in a book print and digital it's out there so uh, i'm looking forward to reading the rest of it i have to pick up issue five and uh, continue this story i got through the first four it's very good yeah and then issue five definitely sort of flips on its head like even though it's a 12 issue series and it's the same story i always called the first four issues even with the gothic and horror undertones i always called that sort of like my 40s 50s soap opera of the series because it's all the manipulation, all the backstory. And just when you think, you know, what's going on and you sort of have an idea of what's going to happen to her. It's not exactly what you think is going to happen to her because issue five gets five through five, six, seven, and eight tend to go more into more of an outright fast paced, outright horror series maybe more comic booky than gothic in that sense uh there's also some elements of you know sort of like a sci-fi and some heroic aspects that come in there and then the last four issues nine through twelve the story arc starts going more towards modern times like the, the the entire story will take place from like the 1920s to present day after everything's said and done issue five is basically the arc of the 1960s. Then you're going to end up hitting like, you know, the mid eighties and then it's going to go through present day. And, you know, there's more of a sci-fi slash horror element 
in the last few issues. I mean, there's even some like links and nudges to other popular culture things. There's sort of like, you know, little side jabs at like Watchmen and you may have noticed an issue for that Faith Fallon was really a young girl named Dorothy from Kansas who wanted something more than what she had. And I don't think that's ever been done in literature, uh, the story of a girl named Dorothy in Kansas doing something. And then also in issue four, um, you know, when she, there's that other character, Luke, who's the adopted son of her movie producers, you know, Luke being an orphan, one would assume he doesn't know who his father is. Can you imagine if he found out who his dad was? And I guarantee that's never been done before in the film or TV, but luckily there's this thing called parody where you're allowed to do things like that. So, you know, I, I definitely want to keep people guessing. In fact, some people would argue that the final issues, since I tend to jump time zones here and there, that you could almost argue that the 11th issue could have been the 12th issue or vice versa. And I actually kind of got that sort of plot twist from, uh, actually I got that from my wife of all things, because we would binge watch TV shows like on Netflix. She tends to want to go to the last episode because she can't wait. She just needs to know what happened. Which, you know, fine. If you want to do that, it's fine. But what I don't need is somebody snickering every time, you know, something's about to happen. I'm like, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Don't even joke about it. I want to know. So I sort of like 11 and 12 is sort of like uh, an homage to people that can't wait for the story to end. Now they're going to have to because they think it ended. It's like, well, it oh, wait, did it end or didn't it end? Well, how, how does that make sense? And you have to read the next one. So I'm really trying to make this as unique and as trippy a story as I can. And uh, one thing I know, like on my, I have a secret faith Fallon group on Facebook. If anyone like, you know, friends me on Facebook and wants to be a part of it, I'll put them in on it. And it's like for people that bought the book that say they want to find out things in advance or sneak peeks or whatever. Well, I remember at one point I was saying that, I appreciate when people tell me how much they enjoy the story as well as the artwork. Like, I don't know if anyone, I'm sure that people in the audience know the movie Zoolander uh, with Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. At the beginning of Zoolander, uh, there was a sequence when they're at that award ceremony. There was a quick sequence where uh, Fabio was presented the award for best actor model. And he was thanking the Academy for recognizing him as an actor slash model, not a model slash actor, because there is a difference. And so I, I tell people, like, I want people to realize that I'm the writer slash artist of Faith Fallon, not just the artist writer, because there is a difference. Like, I put a lot into this story and the plot and the whole characterization and having multiple fourth walls having different people narrating it that uh, trying to do something that I don't think has been, I'm sure has been done before, but maybe not exactly this way. So it's been a, it's been a great experience and insane comics has been like tremendous. I mean, their, their publisher has been really good and they're very relentless as far as, you know, going to trade shows, going to comic cons, promoting the material. I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything better to be honest. I'm really happy that uh, I signed with them and I'm really impressed with 
the way they handle things and you know she's in good hands and i'm glad that i you know got a good group to you know help me get this out there so i definitely want to give you know a shout out to james munch and insane comics in general because you know they've really been you know they've been awesome i don't think i would have gotten as much of an audience without them you know i I doubt i could have gotten as 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 noticed by self-published and who knows what would have happened with another publisher small larger otherwise so you know i'm good with it and you know it works for me and and i'm glad that it's out there and i'm glad that people are enjoying it and you know um i hope people check out the insane website they can get the printer the digital there's also a list of stores that sell it it's on the insane site that'll tell you uh there's about there's different shops in like chicago or texas or whatnot i think there's about a dozen shops that actually carry the title and it's also on comiXology like the first four issues are on comiXology right now um the fifth one should come out in a couple of months they're usually about eight weeks after the comic comes out it should be on comiXology like eight to ten weeks i think is the norm check out one issue if you like it check out a second one and you know, keep going i mean you know, for about three dollars and fifty cents, it's pretty entertaining. I think, you know, it compared is. to like, it is. And you are the writer artist, and there is a lot that goes into the writing. It's not just oh, look at the pretty pictures with some words. I mean, it, it's definitely well written. Um, so I'm glad you pointed that out. That you want to be thought of as writer artist, not artist writer, and it definitely is a writer artist book. Yeah, that, no, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I hate to. You know, I, I do want it to point it out, but I don't want it to come off as like being arrogant because that's not my intent. I, I just want people to, I hope they see like my enthusiasm, you know, about the book and that it rubs off on other people as they read it. Because to be honest, I didn't even know if I had anything when I first did it. Like, there's also one other shout out I want to do before we go. Um, one of the first people, actually the first person to really notice it was... Uh, a commercial artist, illustrator, comic book historian, Arlen Schumer. And I started putting some of the Faith Allen early drawings and pages up on my Facebook page, not knowing if I would really go anywhere with it. And he started liking, commenting. And to be honest, like, I I friended him. I didn't know the guy, but I knew of his work. And I finally got to meet him, like, about two or three months after the first few pages were up. And you know, he really probably was like, you know, the the person to convince me that I had to get this done. And he even like dragged me to some comic cons. He made me show it to people, to other artists. And, uh, you know, I mean, Arlen's a comics historian. He's, he's worked for Neil Adams. He's done a lot of stuff. He's written books on the Twilight Zone, the Silver Age of Comics. And, you know, I didn't know the guy, like I said, and I'm thinking this guy's forgotten more about the art form than most people will ever even know about and he really likes my stuff and you know I I could tell it was like legitimate he really thought I had something there and you know maybe if he didn't see it I probably would still be thinking gee maybe I should like try to do something with it because you know you, you never know I'm sure most people when they create something yeah they like it but you you never know until it gets out there so I got to thank him for helping me, you know, get it out there too. Absolutely. And I'm glad it's out there. Um, Steve, thank you so much. 
and uh, be looking forward to the forthcoming issues. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I hope everybody, you know, is curious enough to pick up the issues and check it out. And, uh, you know, I, I love to hear from people once uh, they read it. So, you know, try to find me on Facebook or look up the Faith Fallon Twitter or Instagram. I mean, it's all out there. And, you know, I love to hear the comments, believe me, you know. I, I want to know what people are thinking and, you know, good, bad, or otherwise. You know, I, I don't want to be in a bubble with this thing. You know, I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll do a sequel to it someday. I mean, it's nothing really planned, but, you know, it, it's good to know. It's good to get a feedback, and it's good to know that people, what people like or dislike or what they appreciate. So, you know, I really thank you again for this opportunity to, you know, to uh, be on this podcast and to, you know, sort of be heard by the audience and all. No, thank you, Steve. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. It was, it was great. And that's my interview with Steve Pinella on Faith Fallon. You can check that out on the Insane Comics website. Didn't I tell you? Steve really brought it. And look, if I sound a little sleepy towards the end of the episode... Well, that's because I'm on the East Coast, Steve's on the West Coast, and uh, it was getting pretty late, and he was great. So that was no reflection on the guest. That was just me starting to tap out. I was getting really tired. And uh, just to you know, give you some idea behind the makings of the podcast, I'm recording this now in the early hours of the morning, so I'm fully awake, have my cup of coffee, and I'm fully energized as I'm doing this. Um, and it's also the time of year, the spring, where it's actually daylight when I'm doing these recordings, so uh, that's kind of nice. I don't feel like I'm doing this in the middle of the night. It also helps when your eight-month-old son starts crying about oh, four o'clock in the morning. That kind of gets you awake before the alarm goes off. But hey, it's all good. It's all good, man. <laughs> not complaining. Everything's fine. Everyone's happy and healthy. That's the important thing. Well, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you want to know who's coming up in the future, you can follow me at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe through iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and it's all free. And if you have time, I'd appreciate a review. You can do that on iTunes. Just a quick little review about what you think about the show, you like, you don't like. And hey, most importantly, recommend it to your friends. Word of mouth goes a long way to spreading the word of Creator Talks. So tell everyone you know who's into comics or into art, writing, creators. There's a lot of good stuff out there that I want to try to bring to your attention through different publishers, through different creators. And I have some really good ones coming up. So stay tuned. Well, that's it for now. For Creative Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.